welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then history buffs and historians ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Rick Sweet. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the 351st show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Simon Cordery, chair of the history department at Iowa State University, and we're going to be talking about Albert Benson Pullman. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Sapsapital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of the show called Farouk Tanarin. And today we'll be talking about Albert Benson Pullman with Simon Cordery, chairman of the history department at Iowa State University. Simon, who was Albert Benson Pullman? Albert Benson Pullman was an entrepreneur. And he was one of the very first employees of Pullman's Palace Car Company. And that's famous as providing luxury railroad travel, sleeping cars, dining cars, club cars, all sorts of marvelous ways to get around the country by rail in the second half of the 19th century. And the name should be familiar, though the first name will not be, because Albert Benton Pullman was the brother of George Mortimer Pullman. And it's George Mortimer Pullman who is most commonly associated with the Pullman cars. Okay, so obviously the the question to ask next is, um, how did this whole process get started? Whose brainchild was it um, to, to see this niche market? Um, how did they get those things going, um, and were things smooth in terms of getting labor, getting materials, all of those kinds of things, um, so that this was kind of a uh, Horatio Alger story, or is there something a little darker going on here? Well, there's something a little bit more complicated. I don't know about darker. I guess that's a matter of perspective. George Pullman indeed has justifiably come down to us as the well-known robber baron. His reputation was cemented by the great, the great Pullman strike of 1894. But the company he founded actually was, I suppose, rooted in the 1850s because George Pullman, despite the kind of the popular culture um, expectation did not invent the sleeping car. He was the seventh person to develop a sleeping car. He's just the one who, through very astute publicity, marketing, and selective history-making, is associated with the palace car. So in 1858, he and Albert decided that they would build a luxury car because railroad travel was, frankly, really awful in the 1850s. It was uncomfortable. The seats were very, very hard. If you were traveling any distance, it meant traveling overnight, and there were very few accommodations for sleeping. And what they did was essentially take some of the ideas from the uh, riverboats of the day and some of the ideas from other sleeping car companies, which George and Albert had both traveled on, and turned them into their own invention, most famously with a car called the Pioneer, which they built in Bloomington, Illinois, and which was part of one of the trains. So there were three trains that were associated with Abraham Lincoln's funeral procession from Chicago down to Springfield for his burial. There's a a myth that the Pullman Company perpetuated that 
Lincoln's body traveled on one of those cars, on the Pioneer, the Pullman Pioneer car. That's actually not true. The, the car itself was certainly luxurious by the standards of the day, but no more luxurious than other luxury cars. And Albert's role was to come up with the, the ways in which the car could be made sumptuous on the inside by using inlaid wood, by using heavy carpeting, by using the sorts of things that you might find in luxury hotels or in the best houses all across the United States. And George, of course, being George, took full credit for all of that. <laughs> oh, well, Simon, I, I'm, uh, since you're, you've used the word luxury or luxurious, I think I, I uh, noted 11 times, uh, the, these were not cheap conveyances. So what... Uh, what uh, multiple of railroad fare did the Pullman command, and who were the people who who uh, consumed this uh, uh, this luxury? Well, the paying passengers would have been wealthy Americans and, frankly, wealthy foreigners as well. There are loads of examples of lords and ladies from Europe coming over and enjoying riding in Pullman cars. The Pullman genius was in part to keep the cars within the company. So if a Pullman car was running on your railroad, let's say the Chicago and Alton from Chicago down to the St. Louis area, the CNA did not own the car, the Pullman company did. Uh. The CNA then paid for the actual pulling of the car and passengers who rode in Pullmans paid the regular fare to the Chicago and Alton, and then they paid a supplement, sometimes 10 to 20% more than the ordinary fare, to the Pullman company. So Pullman, George Pullman, was a business genius, and so he's the one who gets remembered, whereas Albert Pullman, who was the craftsman, who was the skilled worker, he has been virtually ignored by the history books. Okay, so so that then leads me, and it's kind of a follow-up to Rick's question. Um, these kinds of, of luxury items, as they're being designed, are expensive to, to purchase as raw materials uh, and expensive to create into a final product. What kind of... The Pullmans must have had a, a fairly good-sized nest egg in, in which to start their company if, if that's what you're doing. Where did that money, that, that seed money, if you will, come from? Sure, the capital that George used to build the first cars came from two sources. First of all, from investors like Benjamin Field, who was a New York senator who was interested in investing in railroad sleeping cars. And so Field and Pullman was the first name of the first company to build a Pullman car. But then also from George's work in Colorado. George went and lived in Colorado between 1861 and 1863, somewhat fortuitously missing the first couple of years of the Civil War, where he worked as a mercantile exchange owner, and he would sell goods and supplies to miners who were out in Colorado as part of the gold rush of the time. He also got involved in a gold mine. He saved lots of his money, and that money became part of the capital for the Pullman Company. But George also was very early on in Chicago, the director of a bank, 
and banks in those days meant local investments. And if you were a director of a bank, that meant you had the inside track on taking out loans because there's no, there were no restraints on who you could loan to. And so George took out loans from the Third National Bank of Chicago. And he also was very good at getting other people involved, railroad executives and other bankers involved in investing in the Pullman cars. So some of the money was his own. Much of the money came from outside sources. And much of the ideas for the cars came from Albert. Well, Simon, uh, you've, you've sketched a picture of Albert being uh, basically a, uh, a a person of all kinds of trades. Uh, where did he get his skill and ideas for? Uh, was he an engineer? Was uh, how did he design and build these uh, uh, these cars? Albert had been apprenticed to their older brother, Royal Henry, as a carpenter. And so there were six Pullman brothers. Royal Henry was the eldest. Albert was the second. George was the third. Albert and Royal Henry went into business business together. They opened a carpentry store in upstate New York. And they uh, demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were both skilled craftsmen, but really, really useless at business. And so (laughs) what, what George's role was, was to come in and make the business pay. And quite early on, Albert got married. He moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, which was then starting to develop as a furniture center. And he opened a furniture store. And although a skilled craftsman, and you can go to Grand Rapids today, and there are still pieces that Albert Pullman made in the museums, although a skilled craftsman, Albert had no head for business whatsoever. And so by 1857-58, he was in dire financial circumstances, which is when George took him to Chicago initially to lift buildings out of the mud, but then also to help build the railroad cars. And, and so Albert converted his skill as a carpenter into, and a furniture maker into the ability to then envision and design and help to manufacture the interior of the Pullman cars. He was no engineer. He was a carpenter, a a woodworker. All right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. KALA 88.5 FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues. And the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Rick Sweet. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Simon Cordery, Chair of the History Department at Iowa State University, and we're talking about Albert Benson Pullman. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. Brett, as our resident historian, you get the first question. Thanks. 
So, about how many craftsmen were employed by the Pullman Company? It varied from the very beginnings when there was basically Albert, uh, one other skilled craftsman and a couple of laborers building the first car in a shed in Bloomington attached to the Chicago and Alton Railroad. Uh, And the workforce was never actually owned by Pullman until they opened the eponymous town. So when Pullman, the suburb of Chicago, opened, it employed about 8,000 workers. It was a massive layout. It opened in 1884, and it was an incredibly large and self-contained residential and manufacturing set of plants. But until then, the company basically contracted out. They owned a small set of shops in Detroit. They owned a small set of shops shops in Wilmington, Delaware, and they had contracts with the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy in Aurora, and they had contracts in Bloomington and in St. Louis. But un- until the 1880s, they didn't centralize it, and so everything was was decentralized. Sure. Ed? Yeah, uh, you've mentioned that there were six Pullman brothers, and we've heard a little about George, Albert, and Royal. Uh, did the other three brothers have any involvement in these enterprises on the periphery or at all? Sure. Later on, the fourth brother, Charles, or Charlie, did join the Pullman Company. He joined in the 1880s when Albert left after a dispute with George, and Charlie got involved in the streetcar side of things. He became interested in the Pullman Company building street railroad vehicles and also subway vehicles or elevated railroad vehicles. So, for example, when the Pullman Company supplied railroads to what were then the New York Elevated Railroads, railroad cars to the New York Elevated Railroad, that's when Charlie got involved. But he's the only one. The, The other two, Royal Henry and James, were both universalist ministers, and then Frank was a banker who died quite early. Well, so you just gave me my my segue, because I was wondering how poor Albert was doing living in his younger brother's shadow. Um, So what happened with the falling out and and what became of Albert after he walked away from the company? Yeah, Albert was hired as the first general superintendent when the Pullman Company incorporated in 1867, but things quickly got way too extensive for him. He liked to be sort of one-on-one with the workmen. He was kind of a mutualist. He thought that he could oversee the construction and it just got too big too quickly and too far flung. And Albert became the face of Pullman excursions. He would go out on these trips to Aurora, to Milwaukee, to Boston, eventually out to San Francisco, when the Pullman Company would advertise its cars by giving free rides to influential people like politicians, journalists, business executives. And Albert was really good at that. He was very gregarious. He loved to talk to people. He loved to organize these trips. But by the 1880s, there was no need for them anymore because the company was established. And so Albert spent some time introducing Pullman cars 
in Great Britain, but he also spent too much time trying to be a businessman in his own right. And he invested in a series of really bad and really unfortunate companies like the Great Western Insurance Company, which he purchased shares in um, early in 1871, just in time for the Great Chicago Fire to completely wipe it out. And uh, as a result of that debacle, he wound up in the United States Supreme Court trying to claim that he shouldn't be held liable for $4,000 worth of shares that he hadn't paid up. Um, Needless to say, he lost the case. And that's just one example of his inability to ever get out of his brother's shadow in business terms. He He was a terrible businessman. (laughs) <laughs> Genetic thing, I think, yes. Simon, <laughs> you, you've mentioned uh, uh, luxury cars, uh, Pullman excursions, um, uh, uh, other other products. Apparently, the, uh, the Pullmans expanded into anything that ran on a rail, or did they, did they uh, uh, have a focus for what they produced? Everything except locomotives. They made freight cars, they made what they called chair cars, which were ordinary passenger cars, and they made those especially for mass travel by recent immigrants to the United States. In fact, they were often called emigrant cars. So if George and the other officers of the Pullman Company could get a contract, they would build it. I mean, they built mass-produced small freight cars like coal cars or flat cars. They, they would build anything they could. And those weren't luxurious. They were just paying the bills. I mean, by 1885, he had 8,000 workers to try and pay, and they had to go out and get these contracts. Did they, uh, by chance, we had uh, here in the Quad City areas, we had the Bettendorf Company that made, uh, uh, I, be, I believe, uh, Rail, yeah, the roller bearings. Yeah, yeah, the roller. Uh, am I too far afield to suspect that the Pullmans may have used some of Bettendorf's uh, product in their mass? No, production? Oh, they they definitely use Bettendorf trucks. They definitely use Bettendorf trucks. I mean, yeah, they would they would use subcontracted railroad equipment quite a lot. So no, that's not at all out of the way to say that. What kind of custom work did they do? Did you have other robber barons who wanted special cars the way that modern millionaires and billionaires want special yachts? Very much so, yes. They built a lot of cars specifically for individuals, people like Rockefellers and Morgans who wanted to travel in style and didn't want to rub shoulders with the hoi polloi, but also wanted to be able to know that their car was going to be always available. And so, yeah, absolutely, they would spec build cars, but they would also build cars on demand for wealthy Americans. Yeah, um, I wonder what their um, what their manufacturing model was like today for uh, like cars, for instance. There's all kinds of subcontractors, and the car companies themselves assemble a lot of things that have been produced by other companies. Did the Pullman Company follow that model where they had a lot of subcontractors doing basic stuff and then then just bringing it to Pullman to assemble? Or were they kind of in the Henry Ford model where they wanted to control everything from start to finish? I would say instead of basic, base. They would subcontract out the trucks and the brakes 
and everything above the level of the railroad wheels, they would build themselves. And that's one of the ways in which Albert tried to make money out of the Pullman company. He was the president of a brake shoe company in Chicago, and he sold brake shoes to the Pullman company. One of his, one of Albert's very earliest investments was in a laundry. And you can imagine that Pullman cars, overnight cars, generate an awful lot of laundry. And so Albert made sure that all of the Chicago laundry was funneled into the Chicago Steam and Dye Works, in which he was a partner, um, where they also made Pullman uniforms for the porters and the conductors. So in the sense that the Pullman company is a, a hybrid, yes, they definitely contracted out manufacturing many of the of, of the underbellies of the cars but the actual vehicle bodies pullman controlled that completely from the ground up so i'm i'm getting more and more of a sense of albert and and i'm starting to get the feeling that there's a bad ending somewhere down the road here but <laughs> but but before we get there can we talk a bit about about Albert's domestic life or family life or because, you know, it seems to me like he's the kind of guy that would like to go to parties and political soirees and kind of hobnob and so forth, um, you know, so I'm wondering, you know, what's what's the family situation? Is his wife traveling with him? Do the kids sort of try to go into the company business? How does all of that fall out for Albert? Albert married um, in 1848, so he was just 20 years old, and this was, by all accounts, a happy marriage. Emily was his wife, and they had three daughters, Nellie, Emma, and Alice. None of the daughters went into the business. None of them even married anyone close to the railroading business. They all got married um, two of them quite unhappily, one of which ended in a very public and nasty divorce. Uh, but the the only daughter who ever traveled with Albert was the eldest daughter, Nellie. And she traveled at first on some of the early excursions where, where there was an organ on board. And George, I mean, sorry, Albert loved music. He would play the organ. Nellie would accompany him singing. And then when Albert went to Great Britain to introduce Pullman cars onto the railroads of Europe, Nellie went with him on his second trip as a kind of a just to get a sense of what Europe was like. I mean, she traveled over with one of the Pullman um, girls. She traveled over with Albert's sister, Emily, because they needed a chaperone. But that's the only daughter who ever traveled around with, with Albert. Okay. So let's go, let's go to what, what actually happened to <laughs> Albert. What's, what's the dark ending? <laughs> so Albert lost loads of money. He invested in a bad bank that went belly up. He invested in a fraudulent land company that was selling land they didn't own in Kansas. He was involved in um, a street, uh, a handsome cab company in Chicago in which he went up against a real robber baron by the name of Charles Yerkes. And needless to say, Albert lost that battle. So at the end of the day, Albert demonstrates a woeful inability to judge character 
and a complete inability to make money. And yet when he dies, although he dies intestate, he dies worth about $40,000, which was a lot of money in those days. He had a house in Evanston, like all the other Pullmans. He had a house um, out on an island in the uh, St. Lawrence River off the the, um, state of New York. So bad businessman, made loads of money, probably benefited from uh, a little bit of cash from brother George, who wanted to make sure his brother didn't vanish completely from sight. (laughs) Well, it is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. Simon, why do you think knowing about Albert Benson Pullman is, uh, is relevant in today's world? He was an entrepreneur. We valorize entrepreneurs. We think entrepreneurship and innovation are the waves of the future. But what we forget are most entrepreneurs fail. And in fact, Albert is a prime example of a 19th century entrepreneur who generally just didn't actually make any of his networks work. He was involved with loads of different people. But what's interesting about all of his networks is they only exist once. And as soon as the company goes bankrupt, he doesn't go back into business with any of those people ever again. And that's a reminder that entrepreneurship is both difficult, it's full of failure, and it doesn't necessarily do what it's supposed to do. Right. Um, I'm going to kind of follow up on that and talk about relevance because, and, and I thought your comment at the beginning was was apropos, we tend to celebrate those robber barons, particularly in that time frame, who were spectacularly successful and staggeringly ruthless. So, you know, we the, the Carnegies and, and the Morgans and, and you know, those, the, the Rockefellers, those are the guys that we, that we glamorize. And we forget that there were other folks who were trying to to operate in those shark infested waters um who just didn't have the same skill sets and maybe didn't have the same personality um markers to 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 work that way and or so luck. Or, or luck or luck right um you know so so it seems to me it's it's relevant in order to get the story that 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 this was a broader or more complex phenomenon than than what our our high school history books tend to to lead you to believe that that just think that you know guys like Morgan and Rockefeller and Carnegie are running around running amok over everyone and everything um you know so to me that that seems to be part of what's going on there too Brett what do you think well again i think that the story of innovation is largely a story of failure and we forget that at our peril and we have in some ways a very risk averse educational culture and that does not lead to good innovative outcomes so those stories of failure are important to be publicized if we want people to continue taking risks and to have a realistic view of the chances for success yeah sure you have poor albert who had one good idea and a (laughs) bunch of bad ones (laughs) yes ed we'll let you finish up yeah um iowa state's new president wendy wendy winterstein um has been in place for what a year a year and a half yeah a year and a half that's right um 
but I recall reading in the newspaper that when she uh, came into the, her presidency, she said she wanted the theme of that pre of her tenure as president to be entrepreneurship. And so, having heard what I've just heard about <laughs> which Pullman is she going to be? <laughs> my question is: Have you talked with the president about this? <laughs> <laughs> Not sure she would want to hear the message. I have to um, no, but you're certainly right. The language of entrepreneurship is all over the place here. Entrepreneurship and innovation are two of the key words at Iowa State University. Failure isn't. So you, I mean, the, the the notion that somehow everyone's going to succeed is something we forget. And at the same time, your point about living in a risk-averse culture where we only celebrate and reward those who are successful suggests that, yeah, something is going to happen that we won't necessarily appreciate. Absolutely. Well, when we come back on that note, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. This program, the award-winning Relevant or Irrelevant, is heard Friday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find Relevant or Irrelevant and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. This concludes our 351st show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zapital. My name is Rick Sweet. And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Simon Cordery, chair of the history department at Iowa State University. And we've been talking about Albert Benson Pullman. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotsa Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm -hmm.